Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. This is If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles breakup. Welcome to episode 10. You know, if you break my as we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of the breakup. That you would realize That if I ran away from you That you would want me to That I got a big surprise In the last episode, we tracked Lennon over the 10 days leading up to the September 20th meeting. During this period, he and Yoko Ono gave multiple interviews, premiered two avant-garde films, performed for the first time on a major stage as the Plastic Ono Band, while navigating a creeping heroin addiction. Our examination of this period in John's life revealed dramatic mood swings, which we hypothesized may have impacted his judgment and perspective. In this episode, we'll track McCartney over the same 10-day period. Paul's life during this time was entirely different. He was experiencing the joys of his first newborn, continuing to build his skills as a producer. And on September 19th, he gave a major interview to David Wigg of the BBC, one of only a handful he gave that year. While Paul's interview with Wigg was considerably more low-key and less intimate than those given by John in September, it does nevertheless provide intriguing insight into Paul's state of mind at that time. And this is important because far too often thoughts, feelings, and motivations are projected onto Paul based on post-narrative spin rather than his own contemporaneous words. So we take the time to unpack what Paul actually said and did in this time. What we found was an increasingly private man trying to navigate the muddy waters of the Beatles. In fact, what he articulates challenges some of the dominant narratives about him, including the competing ideas that he was both a raging egomaniac and desperately clinging onto the band. We discuss how McCartney is incorrectly positioned during this time and how that impacts the story. In reality, McCartney was a star at the top of his game who was doing his utmost to save and protect the band that he built and loved. We explore the situation from his perspective and consider why he may have acted the way he did and how his actions were interpreted by his bandmates. We hypothesize that too much power, self-centeredness, and inflexibility made McCartney enemy number one within the group, who read his intentions as self-serving 
rather than protective. As with John, Paul's actions and perspective need to be reconsidered and reframed to get a better understanding of the breakup. In part one, we parsed the David Wig interview and discussed the loss of Northern songs on September 19th. In part two, we dig deeper into Paul's role in the breakup and the reactions of those closest to him. I think that we've spent a lot of time on trying to suss out what John is going through in this period. And, um, you know, it, it is worthwhile for us to do the same for Paul. And the problem is, is the optics of 1969 are very deceptive. John and Yoko are constantly being interviewed, which gives them the appearance of being very productive. Whereas Paul is rarely interviewed. When you look at the year, there's really only three major interviews that he gives and they're they're relatively short too um and so his general public appearance that year is very very low key but that doesn't mean that he isn't equally productive and prolific yeah, yeah. he's yeah, actually because, working a great deal he's just not giving interviews constantly right and and on john and yoko's interviews do not necessarily mean that they're coming out with product they're selling the peace product so they're, they are, they're selling, they are selling an, their they're, that it, is right their peace product they're, they're selling an abstract idea which <laughs> means they're not actually producing anything they're just talking right well john says that john and yoko are like the wind right <laughs> like you can't quite put your finger on them but they're around point being is that we have a lot to go on because there, there's a lot of interviews that we can look to for them. They right. make a lot of appearances. Right. Whereas Paul is so much harder to assess during this period because he's not talking. He's not giving interviews. Like there's very little for us to explore. So what ends up happening is that authors just project onto him whatever they need to in order to support or wrap up the story that they've already built. Yeah. Because John and Yoko take all the attention that year, Paul becomes this sort of two-dimensional reactive character, you know, and it, it sort of falls into two camps. One, that he's the egomaniac that John and the Beatles have become the sidemen for, or that Paul is desperately afraid of losing the Beatles. He's, you know, he's trying to hold on and basically he wants to regress and go back while John wants to progress. Which is more sort of the more modern kind of romantic slash pathetic version. Right. I, I agree that the, the old version is more the Paul was an egotistical monster who only cared about himself, right. fame and his own songs. And then the, the, the newer one where because Paul has really staked this claim, like I didn't want the Beatles to end, you know, and I was devastated and depressed. So then it becomes Paul's this tragic character basically saying, I never wanted them to end. I was trying to hold them together, you know. But again, that puts Paul artistically into this weird space of being kind of regressive like i just want us to stay together whereas john wants to go off and scale new heights you know it's also due to paul in the more recent years is emphasizing very much that the beatles loved each other that they were a family you know all that kind of stuff which which authors have 
translated we had this deep love for each other into Paul, Paul. loved the Beatles Paul. very much and they didn't like it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They, <laughs> I wish that instead of going for the, the easy read of the year, which is let's just go and follow all the things that John and Yoko did and said, I wish there was an actual deeper exploration into what's going on with Paul because he is very productive. It's not as if John and Yoko's happenings and TV appearances and interviews that year aren't worthy of study. Absolutely. It just, it's not about the Beatles. And that's kind of what we object to is like, that's, that's sort of irrelevant to the Beatles story. You know, the Beatles story is about the Beatles. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, and if you're going to spend that much time on them, then look at all the three other Beatles and, and, and chronicle what's going on in their lives too. Well, if, if, if Beatles books had chapter after chapter about Mary Hopkins in it, Surely people would be like, I'm sorry, why no Beatle book ever has spent a chapter detailing Paul's growth as a producer. Yes. Paul is doing things. You're just not interested in them. You just yeah. have you just decided to spend 40 pages on John and Yoko's peace expeditions or whatever. Yeah, right, um, right. But they're no more relevant to the Beatles than Paul becoming a producer. It's just a matter of what you've chosen to focus on, and probably because it's a lot easier to write about John and Yoko's you right. know, uh, exploits. Yes. I mean, they're, they are um, very attention-getting, and they are important. If you're looking at the cultural movement of the time, sure. you know, yes, John exactly. and Yoko had their finger on the pulse. I mean, yeah. if you're just doing like um, a pop culture recap of 1969 – then Give Peace Chance and the Bed-Ins are going to be more important than Mary Hopkins' album. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, like, if we're talking about the band of the Beatles, the Bed-Ins are not the Beatles. Right. I mean, I saw a new photo album book where 1969 was almost entirely represented by pictures of John and Yoko, and there there wasn't a picture of Paul and Linda's wedding. There was, you know, Bed-In... Um, John and Yoko's uh, wedding, all of their events took up the year. And it, it frankly was not representative of of what happened that year. And for a I Beatles guess, book. For a Beatles book. All of a sudden, we, we lose the pulse of one of the main two songwriters. I mean, there's three songwriters at this point, but we're really chronicling Lennon, chronicling Lennon and McCartney. And why Paul becomes almost a secondary character in his own story in this year. And he, as you said, just sort of reactive concepts are thrown on him or reactive um, behaviors are thrown on him. He's either heartbroken and regressing and trying to hold on too hard or else he is an egomaniac. So those are the two stories we get with Paul. And yet when we delved in in our episode about um, new directions and uh, newlyweds, we looked at the interview that Paul gave in May 69. You know, for all the discussion about Paul being competitive or jealous of John and Yoko, when we actually looked at what he said, he was defending them and saying, John and Yoko are great, you know? And so what we're trying to parse out here is the difference between the story that right now is projected onto Paul. You know, when you read the books about this year, you get so much editorializing about what Paul was thinking doing. But when we actually look at that interview, we see a different story. 
On the 19th of September, Paul went and talked to David Wig to promote Abbey Road. You know, so Abbey Road's coming out in a week. And so he's he's meeting with David Wig to talk to him about, to publicize the album. And again, it's important to go through what he actually said. It does actually communicate a lot about his mindset, what he's thinking. And so it's worthwhile exploring. So we've pulled what we think are the most relevant and interesting parts. Yeah. And just to set the scene, this is on the 19th of September and the Beatles were coming in to uh, the office for a meeting. And apparently it was to discuss the fact that they believed they were going to win the battle for Northern Song. So they were going to discuss who was going to sit on the board. And so that impacts um, probably Paul's mindset. Uh, you know, I would assume he was probably in a good mood thinking that they're going to win. So when he's interviewed, this is prior to the knowledge that they actually end up losing Northern Songs. So I think if they had done this interview, you know, after that, we would have had maybe a different tonality from Paul, a different perspective, but we're getting him probably when he's in a better state of mind because he's coming in for what should have been probably a positive meeting, right? Right, yeah. Cautiously optimistic, at at least. Right. Okay, so let's dig in. What were your own favorite numbers? Which were you particularly satisfied yourself on on this LP? Which ones stand out? Well, I like um, Come Together. That's a great one, which yeah. is John's yeah, one. Yeah. I like something George writes. I think it's, uh, for me, I think it's the best he's written. Uh, and I like Because on the second side. I mean, first of all, it, it's interesting because Paul is right off the bat, he is championing songs by John and George. You know, so this whole idea yep. that Paul's this crazy egomaniac that only cares about his own songs being singles and their sidemen. For Paul... Yeah. You know, it's like the guy sits down and the first thing he says is how great, you know, John's and George's songs are. I mean, they do have a pretty good track record of promoting the single. I will say that, you know, the Beatles in general have a have a, a good track record so far. Um, <laughs> not that John, is, that John later this year says, I don't give a shit about something. <laughs> So maybe Paul has a good track record. Yes, he's promoting the single, but he's also, like, this was the question about his favorites on the album, you know? Yeah, that's and true. He, it's true. And he mentions those two songs. He thinks those are strong. And then he says, because, and because isn't the single. That's right. He has no reason to, to call that out, except that he likes it. He's he's generous. He's praising his band members' efforts, you know? Um, he's been consistent in terms of championing something, always. Right. And then after he's mentioned those, he does mention you know, the the medley, that he likes that too. So it's not like he totally ignores his own contributions, but he doesn't lead with that. Yeah. And I th- I feel like it's authentic. I, feel, I think he really does like those songs, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that sort of undermines the idea that, um, you know, Paul only cares about his own songs. This is very much a, a band perspective to take, you know, that he chooses songs that are not his own. Whereas, like you said, John later on in the year says he just doesn't care about something. He only cares about Come Together because that's his song. And then um, as far as the Lennon-McCartney myth goes, we talked about that in the last episode. Um, Paul's asked about the lyrics of Because, which we played in our Abbey Road episode. (laughs) But he um, he says those are John's lyrics. And he calls Come Together a John song. Like there's no... 
lack of clarity about which song is Lennon and which song is McCartney. So again, this idea of a, the the myth, we don't really know what John is talking about at this point. Yeah, yeah. Like Paul gives him full credit for Come Together and for Because. As you all know, we each write our own songs and sometimes together under Lennon McCartney. Again, the, this idea of exploding the myth, just, you know, John is talking about something else here rather than. Yeah rather than their explanation of how songs are written. And what about the reference to the Queen? What made you put that on the LP? That's caused a lot of surprises. <laughs> Very nice, but it was, you know, a lot of people didn't know it was there. I saw your column in the <laughs> daily newspaper. I wish I could have got a hold of you. That was just, um, I don't know, you know, I was in Scotland, and I was just writing this little tune. You know, I can, I can never tell, like, how tunes come out. I just wrote it as a joke, you know. Has the Queen or any member of the royal family ever discussed your music with you? Do they ever, when you... No, the only thing I ever talked, uh, the only time I ever talked to a member of the royal family, really, was uh, with the Queen Mother, when she had a, on a variety performance thing, and she just said, uh, where are you playing tomorrow night? It wasn't exactly about music. Where are you playing tomorrow night? And uh, I think I said, or one of us said, Slough. And she said, oh, that's just near us. And <laughs> <laughs> I understand Princess Anne goes out and buys your records. She Apparently, doesn't... I know we did autographs once a couple of years ago. I think they were for Prince Charles and Princess Anne. So, what do you think of the monarchy today? I don't really think about Are it. You I like that film. You yeah. know, I enjoyed that film, and I, I, you know, I don't know. It doesn't doesn't interest me one way or the other. You know, I think they're nice people. Mm. They seem all right, you know, and they looked, as, you know, Queen tells a good joke. As you did in that film, you know, they're good. When you had your MBEs, um, mm. how, how did it strike you then? Do you think they've changed very much since those days? Uh, they, the yeah, family. the image. I, do you think the image is yeah, better? Yeah, obviously, you know, it's got a bit more uh, of the people. You know, they've got a bit more sort of down to earth. Yeah, when, when we got the MBEs, you know, I've, I first, I sort of really believed, you know, having been brought up in it, the whole thing of, you know, mm. Her Majesty and all that stuff, you know. Which is, which is great. You know, I I thought, well, it's a great honour, you know, yes, getting an course, MBE. Yes. Uh, when we went to the palace and lined up with the other five million people who were getting it, uh, and then after you've been presented, you know, you sort of go to the other end of the corridor and they give you this little medal. It you do you do sort of think, well, it's not like you imagined it, you know, That's like in your, in your, you know, I suppose in your dreams you'd have this great sort of, you know, the queen sits there with a great flowing robes and, and puts a sword on your shoulder and stuff. Well, you know, in fact, they just give you a medal. And yeah. the medal sort of says, thanks from us. Yeah. But apparently Harold Wilson really gives you it. <laughs> apparently he decides who gets them. So, so I don't know, you know. In so many books, they talk about Paul being a bit of a social climber. And you know, you can see he's somewhat affectionate to them, but he's also fairly blasé. And then he talks about his MBE, you know, for all the, the rock and roll cred that John gets for sending back his MBE, Paul seems to be fairly blasé about that as well, you know, sort of saying, yeah, well, I thought it would be a big deal, but at the end of the day, it wasn't. I mean, you know, he likes them, but he sees them who, for who they are, you know, that they've got an image. And he thinks they're okay, but he doesn't seem to particularly care that much one way or the other. And his, his song's a joke. He doesn't take it seriously, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, baby boomers have no compunction about about putting fucking JFK up on a pedestal. But Paul's like, yeah, 
the, the royals are fine. I don't hate them. People are like, oh, what a social climbing piece of garbage. It's like, <laughs> okay. Uh, it's true. It's true. I think he's more affectionate, potentially. Yeah. Like you said, that there is some. But Paul says that in his interview in 1966, like that he likes some of the, the symbols that maintain you know, British heritage. And he probably looks at yes. them that way. You know, I, I get that that's more the sense, you know? Well, he's, and he, he's got a bit of a crush on, on, uh, well, he still has a crush the on the queen. He does. Yeah. And he always has. I know it's, it's her, her, her bosom made a huge impression on like nine yes. year old Paul or something. Yes. Like he would, he jerked off to her when he was little. I mean, he just has a soft <laughs> spot for her. That's that's the way it is, people. I mean, that's just how it is. He wrote a song about getting drunk and confessing his love to her. <laughs> He's drawn, like, portraits of her. He does. And he, and he wrote that lyric about the guy <laughs> in Penny Lane, the guy who's jerking off to the picture of the queen. Like. <laughs> Could he be more His transparent? Clean machine, yeah. And I love, I love that he's written so many horny songs about her. And she's just like, yeah, it's all, it's cool, <laughs> right? Yeah, but horniness is a little bit different than holding somebody in high regard, as in above you. You know what I mean? Like that's a different issue. Than, well, that's than what I'm saying. Conscious. Like, what are these weird things that people project on him? He just has a crush on her. Calm down. <laughs> Yeah, but you can see you can see at this point when Paul is a huge, huge star, and he's just kind of like, yeah, you know, the royal, royal family. I don't think about them that much, but they're kind of cool. There's also something kind of weird and subversive about writing that song. There absolutely is because it more normalizes her. It does. That's the actually. thing is by saying like her Majesty, you know, that he's got to get a belly full of, full of wine to admit his love. Like that makes her like one of the common people almost. I know, but it's like I think his stuff. A lot of his stuff is like that. It's like people. Well, well, I think they don't actually assume the cleverness that they should with him. And again, if you read critics who you think know more than you do, yep. then you believe what they tell you. Yes. But anyways, I, th- I thought that the royal conversation sort of undermined one of the ideas that he's always saddled with, that he's class conscious and... John seems really rock and roll because he sends his MBE back. And, you know, therefore it's assumed that he doesn't care about all the the royalty and the prestige and all that kind of thing. But when you hear Paul talking about it, he's pretty blasé about it, too. I mean, he's sort of just spelling it out like, look, we thought it would be really glamorous. But at the end of the day, it's not that big a deal. The idea that John sends it back because he doesn't care um is is sort of counter logical actually. <laughs> so a friend of mine and I were talking, and she was uh, talking to me about um, stuff that she had learned about the Catholic Church, and she was like, "Did you know that you can actually like rescind your Catholicism or whatever? <laughs> like you could go to the church. Wow. And like, yeah, you can excommunicate yourself kind of from the church. And I was like, wow. wow. I was like, are you going to do that? She's like. No, because you have to buy into the religion to do that. And I don't. So why would I bother to go and extricate myself from some shit I don't believe in? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, if you just don't care, then you're like, yeah, I'm I'm just not going to think about it. You you're know? like, yeah, cool. I have a medal, whatever. Yeah. And yes, I get 
that sending the MBE back is an act of protest. Like, I understand that. Nobody has to explain it. (laughs) Yeah, we get it. We get it. Um, And honestly, the Royals aren't looking that great right about now. So I'm not trying to argue that they're the best. No. I mean, obviously, I am not defending the class system, which is something that both John and Paul have been critical of. Right, right. But, you know, John's not protesting the monarchy here. He's he's protesting the the Biafra thing, as <laughs> yeah, he put it. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a fuck you to the government. And, and Paul's critical of the government whenever he feels like it as well. Yeah. I mean, it was an anti-establishment protest, which is effective uh, in its own way. And Paul has done the same thing over the years as well. For example, he sent a telegram to Margaret Thatcher in 1982 protesting right. the treatment of health workers. Um, But the whole point here is that Paul seems to relegate royalty to figureheads. And while that's not especially rebellious, he didn't seem to hold them in extremely high regard, even them. And he's certainly not above criticizing them these days, you know. Right. Except the queen. Exactly. Except the queen who he loves (laughs) and has loved since he was a baby. So Exactly. I do find in his conversation, because he's not reverential to them, that in some ways it's kind of the opposite of being class conscious. Yeah. You know? Where he's like, yeah, they're they're cool. They're fine. No big deal. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes when you read these books, you know, they, they make oh, – I've seen that so often. It drives me crazy that Paul wanted to be with Jane because he was a social climber. It's like, well, maybe he was just interested because they were interesting families. And that is yeah. such a gross thing to say about to say about a, a brilliant, extremely smart, ambitious, capable person from the working class to get on their case about like so-called social climbing. Like, go fuck yourself. What are you saying? He needs to go to the slums and find a wife from a dumpster. Like, fuck. <laughs> it's true. Like, the thing is, is that we all know what Jane Asher's family was like. They were not hoity-toity. They were interesting and intellectual and right. artistic. And you know? so, so is Paul. Why yes. is he not going to marry somebody like that? Right. So why, why maybe there was other things that attracted him. And a part of it could be class because simply they had better educations. Right. I mean, this 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 is a conversation for a different time, but the idea of class and what they project onto Paul about class is terrible. Yeah, especially because Paul, out of all the Beatles, he is clearly the most obsessed with his own working class background. Yep. Um, and it's a theme in a lot of his work. Yep. Beatles and post Beatles. Oh, you know? absolutely. I mean, it's not just the oratorio he wrote, you know, like it comes up a lot in, in a lot of his Beatles work in a, in a way that it doesn't with um, John's, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, John wrote Working Class Hero, so he, he linked himself to that idea in a way that Paul didn't sort of mythologize, you know, sort of being a, a, a hero to the working class. Right. But he, he, didn't, he, he didn't put a, make a slogan and label himself. <laughs> label himself <laughs> the hero of that? Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. he did not. But but he is the one that actually, you know, real, stayed close to his roots, went back there much more often. You know, he has never turned his back on Liverpool or his his large extended working class family there. So it's very odd 
yeah. that he's the one. I mean, I guess it's from the association with, with the Ashers. Jane. It's all about Dayton outside his station. I mean, it's that's true. all it is. It's that's true. all it is. Which is like, that's bullshit that we don't even buy into anymore. You know, like it's fucking stupid. Right. That's the good news is it seems to be actually crumbling pretty quickly right now. But you see this baked into the impression of Paul. And the interesting thing is, even when you read about the Ashers there, you know, Paul always said that he was like, oh, I don't know this word. I don't know. You know, like he he was open to everything that they were sharing. And it was much more the cultural stuff that he liked that they were, you know, the, the book by their bed and, you know, the, the word games that they would play. Like that's not about class or station. It's about right. like him being curious. It's learning. And learning and, uh, you know, and finding the, the cultural immersion that they gave him. It's crazy. It's crazy. And I think it's just a very lazy stereotype. You know, was he ambitious and curious? Uh, yes. Well, but, again, he he's they're they're talking about like the things that he's learning about is like art and history and stuff and, and, and words like, and literature exactly exactly <laughs> it's not like they're trading him on stocks or something you know it's like that's what it, it makes exactly. it sound like or it's eat like properly or you know how to you know look down run, on the commoners or exactly something. run dinner parties no it's not it was all the things that are so relevant to his artwork exactly you know he even did in the James Paul McCartney. Special, he made sure there was a scene with his large extended working class family, you know, like he showcased it. So it's not like he ever tried to hide that that was no, exactly. part of him. Not, I mean, he never has. He's the, he's like the only one who never bought a garish mansion. It's true. It's true. And he's the only one like throughout the 60s. It's shocking to me that Paul's always driving back to Liverpool, you know, to like he's like, you know, this glamorous star. And he's like, well, I'm just going back to Liverpool for the weekend, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 just one of these other stereotypes. He can't win for losing. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but he does mention even what he's talking about, the Royal Variety shows, just to pull this out. He's asked. Would you guys ever do a Royal Variety show again? And Paul's like, uh, never say never, but no. That would be like repeating yourself. So he brings that up again. He's like, listen, we've done Shea Stadium. We're not going to do it again. We've done Royal Variety show. We're not going to do that shit again. If we're going to do Beatles, we're going to do something different. Right. And so there's two ideas there. One that, you know, he's very focused on them progressing and um, continually doing something new. And also, you see that he doesn't particularly beholden to the royals. He's just like, yeah, that was fun once. He's not reverential there. It's not such a big honor for him <laughs> to perform for them again. You know, if he was a real kiss ass to them, he'd be there every year. But he doesn't seem to <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So then after that, um, they lead into um, David Wiggs' question about the trappings of being Paul McCartney. There's one issue that rises to the surface very clearly. It's it's lack of privacy. What are the trappings of being Paul McCartney, Beatle, Paul? Lack of privacy. That's the the trapping. That's <laughs> the main thing that, uh, that yeah bothers me. You. Yeah, sure it, it does. does yeah, you. yeah. Yes. Well, the thing is, uh, I I like it when we're working or when I come to Apple or something. You know, I expect to do autographs and just. To, to perform, in fact, you know, because you, you have to switch on a bit, you know. But I also l love to switch off, you know, like anyone. You come home after a hard day's work and you want to switch off. But sometimes there's still people outside the house and I just say, well, you know, 
can you leave us alone now? Because like, we just had a baby, you know, give yes. us a bit of a chance, you know. You see the sort of the rise of the, the private man here coming up. You know, I think that at this point, Paul's starting to create boundaries. Maybe the treatment of Linda especially exacerbated mm. the situation. But also, I think, you know, all the battling within the Beatles seems to have created this this understanding within Paul that there's the the private self and then there's the public self. You know, he talks about how turned on he is by Linda saying, no, it's okay, you can relax, you can be yourself with me. And maybe that's something that he's really into at this point. But you see this kind of division that only increases and accelerates through the years after this, right? Yes, I think there's a couple parts to it. Like one is the press asking him stupid questions, people taking pictures of him when he wants to go to a restaurant, walking down the street or coming home from Abbey Road or whatever, which would be annoying. I'm sure they all hate that. But then there's the second part of it, which is the fangirls who congregate and sort of hang around him and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I do think that that's part of the fame that Paul likes is having women throw themselves at him Mm -hmm, 24-7, which, um, you know, again, I don't think we need to overthink why he enjoys that, Um, (laughs) why any man would value having sex available to you at the drop of a hat 24-7, and not not just sex, but like your choice of whoever's out there, like you can just pick one. You know, he just has to walk out his front door and open the gates, and there's a group of women saying how wonderful he is. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I think people take it as in... Like, the adoration just feeds his ego, but there's also just, like, the sexual attention of having oh, yeah. women throw themselves. Like, like that, That I guess, feeds your ego also, but it also just feeds your sexual appetite, right? right. So, yeah. um, on a, you know, whatever level. Yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of the point of being a rock star, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, obviously, I think when Linda's in the picture and when he's not partaking in... 10 girls a week or whatever, that loses its charm, right? If you have women throwing themselves at you constantly and you can, and you can have sex with whoever you want, that's one thing. But like if you're committed with one person and then they just sort of become annoying, right? Right. Especially when they're really aggressive to that person and your family who you are now committed to. Yes. And then you add that element in there. You could start seeing where you'd get real fucking testy after a while. Well, and they're they're possessive of him, too. And I think, you know, while he was a free agent, it was probably kind of sexy to have, you know, all these women feeling like they had ownership. But once he is committed to somebody, then, you know, you can see him explaining this to the women continually. That's what I'm saying is he did, you know, when he was a free agent, he wasn't dissuading them. He was Mm. like, hey, girls, what's up? (laughs) Sure, I'll take a picture. Sure, I'll have the wine with you. Yeah, exactly. Who wants to kiss me today? Oh, girls, stop. Yeah. My point being like, he kind of allowed that situation (laughs) during his Beatle years. He encouraged that that situation to develop. It's not it's not as if he's been saying get the fuck away from my house for the past four years. He hasn't. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's got to be like, okay, party's over. And they're like, what the, f- what? Yeah. We like this party. Yeah. It's a transition for him. So I can see, you know, that's a big deal. Also, like if I walked out of my house every day and 10 hot girls were like, hi, you're so beautiful. We love you so much. <laughs> you know, like that's a good feeling. You'd get yeah. used to that. Yeah. 
You know, after a while, if you're going with your spouse and your kids, you'd be like, okay, thank you. But please, that's enough, you know? Right. Especially when they, they are saying that to you and then being totally disrespectful of your family. I mean, then, then it's not fun anymore. Also, you see Paul this year, he's not, as we've said, he's not giving interviews. So there is, I think that he has drawn a line and maybe it's because there's so much stress going on between the, the Beatles. I think that Paul tries to be as honest as possible with reporters. I know a number of people seem to not think this is the case, but, you know, I really do think he tries to keep it as honest as possible. He doesn't always share all the information, but I think what he says, he tries to be honest. And so he maybe didn't want to talk to the press that year because he wasn't sure what to say. You know, he says that the next year. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is likely probably true, you know? I agree. I, I think he's highly edited, yeah, but I, I don't think he's I don't think he's lying. I think he just doesn't. He wants to give you as little as possible. Well, especially when he doesn't have anything to say, you know, that's he likes to be positive. And so when he doesn't know what's going to happen, that he just chooses not to talk to the press that much. It's not where he's putting his energy. You know, for all of this, Paul's an egomaniac. He's not the one that's out there building his personal brand. I think maybe also Linda created a space that was really enjoyable for him. Like maybe with her, he all of a sudden has come to appreciate a boundary that she made his home life really nice. So all of a sudden he doesn't like the intrusion into that. Whereas before, if the home life wasn't that different, if there was groupies coming in and out, there's people coming in and out, apparently his house was always busy, that maybe he was sociable and it was all fine. But once she's created this sort of safe nice space where it's calm and he's come to like the fact that he can relax, then maybe privacy seems like a a more special, important factor that he wants to protect, you know? For sure. For sure. And also his wife, I'm sure, is not enchanted with all the hanger-ons either. Well, that's the thing is that he didn't marry somebody who's a fame whore. He really didn't. As much as they wanted to call her that at the time, she's introverted. She wants to spend time with him. Well, and again, I, I don't want 10 women throwing themselves at my spouse every everywhere we go. I mean, that is not my idea of an awesome time. No, that that is really not fun for anyone. Forget them attacking me. Even if they were nice to me, I would want them yeah. to, to get the hell away from my partner. Yeah. That's tough, but especially if they were being aggressive to you. But so there's them, and then there's also, like, it seemed like for a while that the press was very respectful of stars. You know, like, even we know that all the the press on the tours wouldn't divulge anything that happened. You know, like, the craziness of the tours, nothing was ever said. It was kind of like gentleman's word. Yeah. Whereas by 68, 69, we know that with, you know, Paul's comment about LSD, that that blew up, that all of a sudden the press is starting to Mm, be be a little more antagonistic. Exactly. And sensational and, you know, turning more into the paparazzi that we know. Mm, Yeah. So there may be an element of that's what, you know, that's what was happening at the time. And he's feeling that it's like a perfect storm of he's getting to the point in his life where he wants to be more private and the press is becoming more mm-hmm. uh, antagonistic and, and intrusive. That's a, that's a great point, yep. 
But anyways, but this is the beginning of what we see is division of him where there's the public him and there's the private him and they're very different, you know? Oh yeah. And he has no, he makes no bones about it. It's always discussed that, you know, Paul really cared about fame and commercial success and that was really important to him. There is a contradictory element here where he really does guard and protect his privacy and doesn't seem to care that much about becoming more famous. Again, he's not the one out there doing an interview a day. No, he seems to want to become less famous. Actually, yeah. he says that at some point. He does. He? he does. He's just like, we just want to be a little less famous for a while, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's just interesting that he gets saddled again with this kind of reputation. How uh, is the baby? She's fantastic. Yeah, she's beautiful. She's about the best looking baby I've ever seen. Yeah. Nicest. Just started on cereal. Took every drop. <laughs> For all the mothers and fathers listening. <laughs> do, you, do you plan to have a more? Do you want a large family? Oh, yeah. As many, like as many as... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'd like to have anything. You know. I, <laughs> I love kids. You know. yeah. They're great. I've got, we've got two now. She's like instant family. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's great, you know, it's lovely, because I love them both. Do you feel a different person through marriage? I mean, do you feel sort of mature? Yeah, well, I've never had a kid before, mm. so that mm. you can't help but feel different. Uh, In what way? It takes a bit of time to click. Yes. I mean, I, we still haven't, it still hasn't really clicked that we've got a new daughter, you know. Yes. It takes a bit of time. I feel different, yeah. I don't feel any sort of steadier than I ever felt. You know, I don't, I'm waiting for me to settle down. I don't, <laughs> you know. One of the things that I think is really sweet about this interview, because Paul, he seems pretty even keeled in this, you know, he seems pretty zen and relaxed. Like I think his overall tone in this interview is surprising given what is going on at Apple in those days. You know, this is a fairly chill Paul that we hear. And yet when he really perks up, when you really hear the warmth and affection in his his voice is when he's asked about Mary, right? Yeah, it seems to be the the one part that's just kind of a pure joy is talking about the kids. There's no yeah, you know, there's no hedging. No, no, like it's, it's no a mixed complete, feelings about it. There's no mixed feelings. It's just pure joy. He seems very happy. You know, he's thrilled to be a father. Yeah. You know, the, there's no conflict right. in that, yes, that statement, you know, and, it, and it's very sweet. You see some of these themes that continue throughout his life and this idea that he loves kids. He's thrilled to be to have a family are really prevalent in this conversation. And, and uh, you know, it's very cute. But at the same time, I think one of the things that's remarkable is, you know, after the breakup, there's sort of this positioning of Paul as in, well, he became a family man. You know, this idea that, that it kind of neutered him or that, you know, it, he, he got a yeah. little softer because he had a family. But yet I think it's interesting that he points out that he feels a little bit different. It, it hasn't quite sunk in yet, but he hasn't. it hasn't settled him down at all, which he seems surprised about, you know? So this idea that it it has dampened his ambition, I think, is is just a fallacy. Like, you know, clearly he's still crazy ambitious. Clearly it hasn't changed his artistic persona. He just has something that's making him quite happy at home. Right. Yeah, well, I you know, I was recently looking through some articles slash reviews from the 70s about Paul. 
and they were so critical of him for being happy. It's unbelievable. Like they were so hard on him for, for daring to sing about domesticity. And like, they were just so disgusted by that. (laughs) Right. Maybe we should correct that. Like, (laughs) I think our culture was a little fucked up back then. (laughs) Like maybe we should reevaluate that. They conflate the idea that he is enjoying domesticity with like the death of his ambition or artistic personality no, or it's, any it's, of that, you it, know? It, not even his ambition. It's like death of his artistic soul. It's like you can't be an artist in, unless you're constantly struggling. Like you have to be on the verge of suicide every day to be a decent artist. And like right, that's right. such a toxic idea. It's so ridiculous. I know, but that's something that's taken so hold in our imagination. And I think that John and Yoko really promoted this idea. I know. They're know? like the they're like the poster children for that. And it's awful. Right. But I just I I love the fact that he's just he's clear here. He's like, I'm I I love having kids and it has not settled me down. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm still and it super ambitious. And he didn't. What about mm-hmm. what about the image of the Beatles? Now there's no doubt that the older generation who have been been very for you, a lot of them have sort of started saying things like Oh, they're not like they used to be. What are they doing? Mm. You know, all this hair and and they're not it's so true, you know. dressed. Does this yeah. disturb you? No, no. Uh, but you might lose some of your old. See, the thing is, you grow up. You know, everyone grows up, and it is always a great pity to see a baby turn into an adult, because it's always much nicer when they're a baby and they go goo goo and they do everything you want. You know, it's lovely. And in a certain period in our career, we did. You know, we were sort of particularly nice. You know, we had like a, a very all-round appeal. Uh, it wasn't put on, you know, we just, we were more like that, you know. But as we've grown up, we've, you become more individual. And so like, for instance, if you don't want a press interview, you, you know, like these days we don't have to say yes. We're more true to ourselves these days. Mm. And it obviously doesn't please some people, but I think you find like a lot of other people like us for it. You know, I'll tell you what happened. We're, once in the old days, we, we used to wear leather jackets. We used to wear leather suits a lot. And we changed. Brian said, look, lads, smarten up a bit, you know, get yourself suits. So we got suits and ties and stuff, and we went on like that. We gained a whole new audience and lost uh, all the people who wanted us in leather. Oh, I see. See, so this is happening again. You know, I think it always will happen that where we'll lose all the people who wanted us to be just four nice, clean-cut lads and who didn't want us to grow beards. Yes. And uh, we'll, we'll gain all the people who don't care whether we've got beards or what, you know, because they're out for us, yes. not for what we look like or what, how nicely we speak, you know. Yes. just They're out for us being truthful to ourselves. That's what they're interested in. I think this is r- really important, actually. You know, if we're looking at what Paul is saying in this year, this is peppered throughout this conversation, is this idea of evolution, artistic evolution. And, you know, again, this this idea that Paul, you know, wanted the Beatles to stay the way they were and, you know, that he was almost regressing. I literally have heard people say that he was regressing and wanted to get back while John wanted to go forward. Yeah. It's such bullshit. Yes. Because... You know, here we have him saying very clearly, I'm okay 
with us evolving, I'm okay with us losing some fans because as people, as human beings, we need to do this. And there's going to be people who like us no matter who we are. This is a, quite a, an important statement as an artist. Like, I am okay with losing some of the fans, you know, because again, this idea that Paul wanted to keep all the teeny, teeny boppers, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that people who value us for us and are okay with us becoming, he's talking about becoming an adult, you know, and he's saying that for people who appreciate us at this stage, they will follow us and that's cool. And maybe we'll lose some other fans, but it, that happens. That's, that's the, the progress that you have to make as an artist. This idea that they're standing still seems to be a, a terrible thing for Paul. And it's unfortunate that he's kind of, again, gotten saddled with this reputation because it. when you look at what he says, it's the opposite. And he's been saying it all year, in fairness. We have receipts. We've got all the get back tapes. Right. He says this in get back. This is a constant conversation that they have. And he is actually driving this conversation. That's right. Not wanting to repeat themselves, wanting to find new ways of doing things, of being creative. He's coming up with a lot of ideas for things that they could do that would be new and clever and challenging. And that seems to be his constant MO is like, how can we top ourselves? How can we do something different? Right. And that's it's been like that throughout the Beatles. It's yeah. always it's always been like that. And he was, you know, coming up with big ideas for Let It Be, too, that the guys were all like, wow. Right. In terms of their final <laughs> show. Yeah. I mean, he wanted something that was spectacular. That he wanted something epic. Yeah. He wanted something epic that would be commensurate. Well, that would be an appropriate payoff. I think for, you know, you watch you watch everything being made and then he wanted the grand finale to be big. And and it was in the way that they did it. But, you know, he had a lot of other ideas too. And I just think that there's a lot more artistic thoughtfulness to Paul than he's given credit for. Like this idea of him wanting to try something new and not rest on his laurels. And, you know, in some ways, maybe that bit him in the ass in the seventies where he's hopping from one style to another because he's just constantly interested in newness. Right. Right. But I think that 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 shows an innovativeness that's really core to him is this and this curiosity to yes. do new things. Right. That's a hallmark, first of all, of him as an artist. And it, it's also a hallmark of the Beatles. Again, he sounds pretty chill in this interview. Um, he does not seem stressed by the idea that they're going to lose some fans. You know, you would think reading a, a Beatles book that Paul was obsessed with being mainstream to everyone. And that's what John says. Like, we don't need, you know, songs for the grannies or as long as we have songs for the grannies, we'll be mainstream. Well, but John can say that shit as, as much as he wants, but it doesn't make it true. And I don't care if every fucking Beatle guy writes that in their stupid books. It doesn't make it true because Sergeant Pepper was not the status quo. I mean, that was not meeting people's expectations. The idea that that he is holding them back is fucking ridiculous and incredibly insulting. But the but the idea that the Beatles are going to do something fucking new on every album. Yep. That is at least as much Paul's doing and Paul's idea and Paul's pushing oh, as it is. Absolutely. John's. Absolutely. At minimum. 
it, I mean, Paul's obsessed with it throughout the, throughout the sixties in all interviews. He's always saying yes. that we need to do something we'll mo- keep new, moving forward, move forward. We don't want to go backwards. We always try and top ourselves, you know, like constantly, it seems like an obsession with him actually. So I'm not sure how, how he doesn't have that reputation, you know? Well, because, because John said, I'm the progressive one. And everyone's like, well, he's clearly the progressive one. This idea that John is doing out there stuff is one thing, but that doesn't mean that doing like the Abbey Road long medley isn't equally progressive. You know what I mean? Like um, Paul is pushing them just in, in different ways. So if you, if your benchmark is, is it weirder than, you know, by this point, yes, John is uh, yeah. probably winning that. Yeah. But we, we talk about it as if, as if, as if bringing classical music into popular music was no big thing. Like that's not a big deal. Right. Well, that that's always my point is that why isn't that seen as hugely innovative and different and because really it's important? Not as, you know, it's got nothing to do with dicks. That's true. But but on top of that, it it again goes to Paul's inability to romance his own achievements. Agree. You know, like <laughs> he he says at this one he likes he likes uh come together something because and the long one or, you know, whatever he says, he doesn't even talk about, he doesn't talk about how what they were trying to do is, you know, combine the best of classical and rock because rock is the new class. You know what I mean? Like Because doesn't, Paul doesn't fucking sit around all day writing up his own press releases about what a great artist he is and then like rehearsing <laughs> well, them. He, and you what, know. Isn't he supposed to be the world's best PR people? Isn't oh, that what everybody says? Please. He's a fucking disaster. We know it. Yes, we do know it. But I think that this should be noted of what Paul, like we said in May, he defends John and Yoko, says they're brilliant, they're a great couple, you know, they're straight, they're in love, all of this kind of stuff. So that's what he says. When we look at what Paul is realistically saying in September, he's championing John and George's work. He's saying that it's okay if we lose some fans, we need to progress. And so let's give him some credit for what he actually is putting out in the world at this time. This is where Paul was at. Dude's progressive. All right. And then there's a question about the beloved Alan Klein. How much interest and how much control do you have over Apple now that you have a new manager in Mr. Klein? Uh, we, Are you like the a four of us man? have a- no, I don't like doing the business no, bit that much, but uh, you can't avoid it. See, the thing is, like, we were once a band, just a band, but then because we were successful, you can't help it being successful. You know, Money comes in, you, know, you can't help that again. When money comes in, income tax has to be paid. So you can't really help just turning into a businessman because someone says to you, you know, well, where's your income tax, mate? And you say, well, uh I better get on to someone, you know, I hope I've got a bit to pay you and stuff. So you've got to get all that together, you know. So it's just for, it's just force of circumstance, you know, you can't help it. So I think he's saying Klein doesn't have any fucking control. The four of us have the control. Right. You know, he, he totally sidesteps talking about Klein. Yeah. And I, I, I think that he is not going to publicly acknowledge Klein or suggest that he has control. You know, he's he's like, no, we own Apple. Yeah. We have control. 
And then he does not spend any time on that. But also he clarifies here, like he did in the spring, that he does not like business. There's this, again, he has this reputation for being a good business person or, you know, being the more business minded one. But he it's surprising to me because he constantly is talking about how much he hates business. And it's just that he happens to be somewhat responsible and saying, well, I guess we have to do it because we're a really big deal and we make a lot of money. So there's unfortunately a business part to our world right now. But, you know, I think Paul has made it really clear that he's not interested in business. And I just wish that that him being smart and sort of understanding a little bit about business is different than him being progressively <laughs> business-minded. You know what I mean? I know. It's so true. If I if I handle all the finances in my family, no one's like, she loves banking. She wishes <laughs> she could be a banker. It's like, no, That's but someone passion. has to balance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, you know, the books make it seem like this is a special interest or talent of Paul's. And it's interesting that like <laughs> yeah. he's only got a couple of, a couple interviews. And in both both interviews, he complains about business and says he doesn't like it. So like, let's actually take the guy at his word. He doesn't like it. He doesn't enjoy it. He's an artist. He would rather be playing music in a no studio. No kidding. No kidding. And he's and he's said it ruined the Beatles so many times. Well, it's true. That's true. He said that they got pulled away from what actually bonded them, which was the and the fun of it, which is the music part, and were um, destroyed by the fact that it was no fun anymore because it was all business. So this is <laughs> this is not his passion. And then Wig asks about the Isle of Wight. Paul, um, what about the future of the Beatles? I happen to know that the organisers of the Isle of Wight Pop Festival are going to ask you uh, and the rest of the Beatles if you will top the bill next year at the Isle of Wight. Now, what's your reaction to a thing like that? Are you likely to go back on stage and perhaps do a, a show like that? I don't know, you know. I, d I don't think so. For me, you see, what happened was uh, when we played The Cavern, when we played the really early days, we really enjoyed performing, you know, and that, that was the fun, was to perform. But since then, our things got more into records and songwriting, mainly because uh, if you start to perform, after, say, The Cabin, you start to perform at, like, Peterborough Empire, Glasgow Empire, Liverpool Empire, you get an act. And, like, we never used to really vary the act. Occasionally we put a new song in. But you get very stereotyped, you know, and we just got an act. I mean, once you knew the act... Yeah. There wasn't really much more fun in it, you know, except if anything went wrong or anything went particularly right, you know, but it was normally just, eh, here we go again. So for us, we've done all that you can do in performing. We can get bigger audiences, we can get bigger in quantity, but in quality of performance, it's difficult. You know, I personally, if we were going to do anything, prefer to just go right back to a small club. You would. Just have 50 people in and sing to them, you know, and mm. have a bit of a sing-song. I'd get more fun from that. You would. This little section here is really, really interesting for a couple of reasons, right? It's yeah. like one would assume, given that Paul is a performing powerhouse, that, you know, that he would be like, absolutely, I want to perform. I, I find it intriguing that Paul really just wants to do smaller venues at this point, you know, that his his desire to perform seems much more connected to something smaller, more intimate, more connected to the audience. 
And he doesn't seem to be attracted to the big. Again, it's like this idea that we have that Paul was really fame-obsessed and egotistical does not play out. And I don't think he's faking this. I mean, I think he's really expressing his honest opinion. He doesn't seem to be super excited by the Isle of Wight, you know? I definitely agree. I was actually kind of shocked when I heard this audio, not because um, necessarily of what he's saying, because we know— Obviously, we know that he pitched the idea of going to little clubs in the divorce meeting. I mean, everybody knows that. But it was it was kind of um, striking to hear him telling a reporter about it the day before the divorce meeting. Like, <laughs> right, right. He's really into this idea. And this is a part of an audio that we got from YouTube, which I think was more of like an extended part of the interview. Like, I'm not even sure if this made it to air. This might yeah, be just like it's the qu- uncut version of Wig's tape. Yeah, it's really interesting because in the written version of this interview, it does not exist, but yeah. it is part of it, you know? It's, it's on the record. It is on the yeah. record. This is this is part of it. Paul is straight up saying, like, I really don't want to do festivals. I, I, I want to take it down a notch. I really want to get back to the uh, real playing. Right. And this isn't just Paul talking because he does it. Yeah. Two years, you know, he does it, what, two years later, two and a half years later, he goes and does this. So this was like an authentic desire on his part was to go and reconnect with the smaller audience. Yes, for you know? sure. And sort of, I wonder why he wants to do that. Like, is that really because he he feels more of a connection with a smaller audience? Is it because he wants to sort of build up his chops again and he doesn't want to just... I don't know, but it, it is satisfying something important to him. If I'm just spitballing here, I would say maybe he needs to, I mean, the things that we talked about, he, he, he wants to reconnect with an audience. We have to acknowledge that they're the most famous band in the world at this point. I mean, even to this day, they're probably the most famous band, you know, the whole century. So, I mean, he's one of the most famous people in, in modern history. So there's something about grounding yourself, you know, that is very important for him because, you know, it's like we talk about the astronauts once they go to the moon, you know, they come back to earth and it's like their whole life is kind of fucked up because they've been to the moon, you know? And I see like Paul is constantly trying to get grounded, like for the rest of his life, you know, he does a lot of different things to sort of stay on the ground. Yeah. And, you know, and there seems to be this constant need for connection with the common person. Yes. And, you know, I put that, you know, that should be in your quotes. The the actual (laughs) nature, earth, like he physically wants to be grounded, but I think he also wants to be connected to people. I mean, obviously, and now he does huge, huge tours. And by 76, he's back up doing a huge tour. But there seems to be the sense that he wanted to build back up to that. And I, I don't know if it's because the cavern have has such fond memories for him. Like maybe that was more fun for him than the big Beatles tours. But also he's, he's a, you know, he's a perfectionist musician too. So, you know, that can't have been satisfying eventually to have well, been on tour and not, not progress musically. Right. Right. Yeah, so there's a couple of levels here. Like, I, I think he wants to do it with the Beatles to get them to a more intimate place musically. Um, well, yes, that that's a different issue. Like, why Paul wants to do it himself and then why he wants right. the Beatles. 
right. to go and do this version, I agree, is that that takes them out of the glamour business yes. the world fame, of music, the, the money. Fame, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that he says is killing all of their joy in the fun and taking them back to an environment where they can rebond. Well, and again, it's an equalizer. If one of us, or all of us for that matter, are getting too fucking big for our britches, you know, maybe we go back to when we were just a bunch of shit kickers in Liverpool or, whatever, you know, whatever. But the funny bit is, is that, you know, to hear John and George talk about it, like Paul is the one that shouldn't want to go back to that because he's the one that thinks that he's better, right? But, you know, that's not what Paul wants to do. He's happy to go back and just be like, let's just play. Let's just be that great little yeah, band again. Paul, if, if Paul thinks he's better than that, he's going to be eager to prove himself because he's also extraordinarily competitive. It's one thing if Paul was just an arrogant dickhead walking around going like, I wear the crown and don't dare take it off my head. He's like, come and get the crown, bitch. I'd fight you for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish, I wish a motherfucker would try to take this shit off my head. Because that go elevates my right game. Right now. Exactly. Yeah. I'm getting bored up here. I got too many fucking gold discs. I'm fucking shoving them under beds and that, shit. That's true. That's true. He's like, I'm willing to go right back down again and build right back up again. Exactly. You know, because that that's, I guess there's a challenge in that. We also have stories of him, like, just dropping by pubs and playing. So I do think think that there is probably sort of more more of a communal aspect to being in smaller venues too you know well and then I was going to say the other thing about uh, you know the Beatles aside just just Paul and whatever he's psychologically getting out of this would be besides being sort of grounded and feeling like a human being and the other thing would be like that's proving himself yeah I think that's really interesting because on the big stages you can sort of camouflage a lot, you know, by having backup and poor sound systems and a million people. Whereas, and this is what I mean about him being a perfectionist musician is that this forces them to develop their skills again as a live band, which. Right. Which means something to Paul, which with all due respect to the other Beatles, I don't think they really give a shit. I don't think they're out there trying to find new sounds and all that kind of stuff. They just want to, you know, write their music and do their thing. They want to put messages out in the world. I don't want to denigrate that. Like, that's important to them and to people who love their music. The messages they put forward with their lyrics, they do care a lot about that. What I'm saying is, like, in terms of, like, honing their musical skills and pushing to find different different things within music, that's not really so much. Yeah. That's more Paul's thing. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. And and neither one, one's not better than the other. I, right, Although right. I think that Paul cares about the, the messages that he's putting in the world, too. It's yeah. just, you know, like John and Yoko are making big splashes in their ways. And, and I agree with you. I mean, this is something that I hope that we have conveyed, that we do think there is a lot of importance, cultural value to what they're doing. But that's yes. different than being a tight little band, you know, and, and they're both important. Yeah, I'm a, I am I agree. And I'm not trying to say that lyrics aren't important. I'm just saying that, you know, in my opinion, I personally think there is too much emphasis placed on one versus the other. Or at yeah. least traditionally yeah, yeah. there has been. And like in the, you know, old timey. Yeah. Beatle criticism, which in a lot of ways hasn't really evolved. <laughs> no, it's so true. It's so stuff. true. Um, in that regard, that I don't think that what Paul does is given proper and you know adequate analysis and respect. 
Right, right. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and it's a real problem because Paul does so much musically, but it's just, it's harder for critics to talk about what's going on musically because yeah. most of them aren't musicians. Yeah. So they focus on what they know best, which is often lyrics. And, you know, Paul has brilliant lyrics, but he brings so much to the table musically. And the fact that that gets ignored or it's not understood means that a lot of like the innovativeness or the experiment, uh, the experimentation that Paul's bringing, you know, he just doesn't get credit for yeah. that, you know? And, and so it's, it's unfortunate. I, I agree with you that it, it, he doesn't get the adequate credit and respect because of that issue. Two things. One is that I think you're right that most of the people writing this stuff are not musicians. They're writers, you know, like most yes, of the yes, Beatles exactly, writers are exactly. writers. That's just what they do. Right. Yeah. So they probably aren't necessarily equipped to talk about it. But then the other thing is that it's hard to talk about music. It is. You know? It's hard to write about it. That's it a is, great point. You know, without actually playing the music. So like you would never, for instance, you'd never teach a course on music without playing the music, whereas yeah. you could read lyrics. I mean, yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, we can we can write. We all write, not well necessarily, but we all write. Whereas we don't all play music. <laughs> it's very difficult to talk about in in an interesting way, at least. Chris Thomas said that he, after he worked with Paul, he didn't realize until then how much Paul was leading the Beatles musically. You know, you wouldn't necessarily know that. Yeah. You wouldn't know that, and you wouldn't know the interesting things that he's bringing. You just get the sense of, I like the sound of something, you know? And so, again, this idea that John's always the experimental one is that, yes, in terms of, like, embracing new ideas or trying new things, but I think Paul was trying a lot of new things musically, and we just haven't really discussed that, or that hasn't been adequately discussed. Well, when Paul is talking about the joys of doing tiny clubs, um, Wig, he kind of brings up Toronto. I mean, he doesn't say it explicitly, but he's like, oh, um, does John feel the same way? Yeah. And, and then Paul brings up Toronto. You know, I personally, if we were going to do anything, prefer to just go right back to a small club. And what about John? He seems to be John loves to it. go yeah. back and perform. Isn't sure. this going to cause a sort of division in the group? No, no. I mean, no, the thing is, John wants to do that, you know, and I think it's great, you know. I mean, see, I've just said I don't particularly like the idea of playing to those many people, but I'd hate to stop him doing it. Yes. I mean, he loves it. He did this Toronto thing and had a, a really great time. So I'd be the last person to say, well, you know, don't do it because you've got to just do it with the Beatles and stuff. I think it's a great idea anyway. You know? mm. This is such good information to have because this really undermines the idea that Paul was controlling and that John was shackled by the Beatles. Clearly, Paul is saying, I'm happy for him to do these things. I'm not going to stop him. He legit sounds, you know, happy that John was excited by this. He is supportive of it. You know, like, it, 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 they sound close. Like, he is... He knows that John loved it and had a great time and seems to be happy that John liked it and that he had a good time, you know? Yes. And he doesn't sound pitiful. No, he doesn't like sound jealous that, or... No, yeah. no. But like the way that, you know, Doggett at all would uh, describe it, it would be like, Paul was so pathetic and powerless that he desperately wished he could stop John from, you know, 
doing anything without him, but he was so weak and ineffectual that he didn't have the power to do so anyway. Well, but it doesn't sound like that to me. I mean, Paul doesn't say, what can I do about it? Even if I wanted to stop it, I couldn't. He, he's like, I'd be the last person to say, well, you know, don't do it because you've got to just do it with the Beatles. I mean, I'm not arguing that Paul is the boss and can tell John what to do and can give him permission. I'm not I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case. I'm saying that that is kind of how it sounds. <laughs> right, right. That he has the ability to put his foot down and say, no, John, you can't do that. You can only do it with the Beatles. I mean, you know, Doggett would, his take is that Paul is having hissy fits and emotional breakdowns left, right, and center. And But like, this is what Paul is actually saying. And he sounds pretty cool with it. I mean, this doesn't necessarily mean that Paul wasn't hurt or didn't have issues with it. But publicly, he's being really supportive of John. And I think part of him does actually like the fact that John is having fun, um, you know, playing and doing something, performing. I mean, it could be partly Paul is thinking, great, if he's enjoying performing, then maybe he'll want to perform going forward. You know, like there could be um, a selfish aspect to it that he's happy to see John re-engage with performance. But that's, that's not what he says here. Like here, the only evidence that we've got is he's supportive of John and he's not going to hold John back. You know, he's encouraging of John going and doing his own thing. So again, this idea that John is limited or, you know, that John's freedom is curtailed at all by the Beatles is not true. You know, we've got it right here. Paul's saying he's the last person that's going to say that. Right. And I mean, you know, I guess to play devil's advocate, because there's always somebody who's going to push back. But um, I mean, we could play devil's advocate and say maybe Paul is posturing when he says that, you know, maybe he's um, he's implying more power than he has. Um, all of that is not something Paul typically does, especially no. in public. No. Um, and again, this is supposed to be this period where he feels so insecure and powerless. This period is so, so confusing because you've got like you've got Connolly saying that Paul was so ultra confident. We've also got people that knew them at the time who said Paul was ultra confident in this period. So and Connolly was there and Peter Doggett was not. I assume it was a bit of both, that Paul is one of the biggest yeah. stars in the world. They're putting out Abbey Road. He, you know, just did a, an amazing job. He's proud of that. But at the same time, there's an insecurity to their future. So maybe it's a combo, and it probably depends who he's with on what side he reflects. But but, but he sounds pretty, he sounds like a really, actually, very supportive partner here. He does. Like he sounded in May when he was supporting John and Yoko. And we've got some passages in the Get Back tapes where where Paul is talking about the fact that he's encouraging John, if John wants to do a solo album, to go and to do it and be authentic and go all out. You know, I think we're all that year he exhibits really supportive partnership behavior. I mean, sometimes we can get really hard on Paul, actually, um, in terms of, just from like a relationship standpoint. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Meaning like, because John is always sort of the hurt half, like, you know, like the, the hurt partner who's not getting enough 
who doesn't, you know, who Paul can't show his love to and how John is ultimately always disappointed. You know, he always feels let down yeah, and he always yeah. wants more and Paul's never giving him enough. And, you know, we we go kind of hard on him sometimes for, for not being more, you know, giving or forthcoming. Forthcoming, but yeah. Will. And Paul himself is critical of himself right. later on right. in life. You know, that seems to be his regret is that he did not communicate more how he felt, right? He's obsessive about it now. Yeah. That he didn't tell Johnny loved him enough and all this kind of stuff. Like we said, to an obsessive level. It's part of every concert he does now, you know. Right, to make um, up for it, probably. So it's yes. like he's doing penance in public about it. Yes. But um, there really and truly are moments where Paul does seem to be actually a very good, supportive partner. He like, really historically. Is. He really you know? is. Yes. And I, I mean, it, and it's not need-based. Like, it's not based on what can you do for me. Like, Paul occasionally yeah. does take this role of just wanting the best for John. Yes. And I I, I think that sometimes that gets misinterpreted yes. by John as... Not um, caring. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I He's totally like, agree. Not, it's almost like he doesn't understand the idea of unconditional love. No, <laughs> I think that's an excellent point that I think that that is totally misinterpreted. Like, you know, I'd like to just underline that point because John's probably thinking, well, why aren't you fighting and saying, why aren't you performing with the Beatles? And Paul's like, I'm glad, John. I'm glad it made you happy, you know? Right, right. And, John, and he's like, oh, well, you clearly don't fucking care. Yeah. Well, I may as well just quit since you don't care. Yeah. I think, you know, for whatever reason, John is more comfortable with, like, with displays of love that are possessive. Yeah. Well, look, and, who, look who he chooses to be with. I mean, Yoko, you know, she's the perfect match because they're very similar in terms of being insanely jealous and possessive and, possessive, and dependent, yeah. codependent. Yeah. And so, you know, he sort of found his match in her right, in, right. That, in that regard. And he, I think both of them see that as sexy and signs of yes. love and devotion is this yes. neediness. Yes. And so when Paul is actually, like you said, altruistic and loves John unconditionally, that John interprets that as not caring and not fighting yeah. for him and not needing him. And if he doesn't need John, then he might walk away, you know? And I do think that Paul can be very possessive of John. Like, I, I do think that is something he can yep. be. Yep. But I think his his neediness for sure lessened over time. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. There's there's a little bit of both where he's possessive. And especially after, you know, I think at this point, it's been about a year since Paul's had to contend with Yoko being there and, you know, just sort of a, a fracture in their relationship. And I think that Paul, in order to maintain it, has tried to give John space and, yeah. you know, the freedom to do what he wants. And in some ways, I think John's like that. And in some ways, again, I think that communicates to John that Paul doesn't care in the way that when Paul went and just did his own songs on the White Album, that really hurt John's feelings. Whereas that may have been just Paul saying, OK, you got a partner. Ah, fine, I'll go and I'll go and do my songs on my own. You know, like I think they misread what each other needs. Yeah. You know, they're not talking it out. So they I mean. <laughs> they would definitely need counseling. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely would. Um, 
but here, this seems authentic. Like, Paul seems to be pleased and happy that John had fun. And, I think so, too. And, and, and to your point, if he's like, well, good, I'm, I'm glad that he's getting what he needs. If, if that's something that he needs, I'm glad that he got it. Because I, I don't want to give it to him. Well, again, I had to think about that one because it challenged my expectations. Yeah. That at this point, Paul would not have been interested in Toronto. You know, or the Isle of Wight. John just did Toronto. And, you know, given that Paul performs on really big stages right now, I would have assumed this is something that Paul, the artist at the top of his game in 69, would want. But apparently that's not where he was at as an artist. Yeah. Well, and we've been told that he's a raging egomaniac. Yeah, that is a fame fame whore and wants to sell yeah. sell albums and doesn't want to lose any fans. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. He could charge more ticket, more more money. <laughs> Stay in the pop box because and he wants he's okay with keeping the teeny boppers and the grannies. And here in this interview, again, if we actually take away all the projections onto Paul and look at what he's saying, he's saying I'm okay with losing fans. We've got to progress. I'm an adult. We'll gain some more. I'm not afraid. And then in terms of touring, he's like, yeah, I'm not so into the really big famous thing right now. I just, I want to reconnect with my audience and have fun. And he's like, if John is having fun on this giant stage, then good. I'm glad he is. And again, maybe he's thinking if he gets the taste for touring, maybe he'll be more into touring with me. Like there could be, a selfish sure. element too, too. But I think he genuinely right, right, right. seems he's to like an angel, no. like a selfless <laughs> angel. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. But also, Paul is communicating uh, through the press, and there's always multiple targets. Mostly, probably this is promotion of Abbey Road, but he knows that John is going to read this. So you know, this could be a way of him assuring John that he's okay with John, like moonlighting and doing. The yeah. Plastic Ono Band, as well as, you know, as Beatles stuff, that Paul's not going to stop him. But I just think yeah. it's, it's important to just say, we've got evidence that Paul is saying, I'm not going to curtail any of John's activities. I am not going to do that. And so this idea that John had to break free to do, you know, the things that he wanted to do is simply not true. Like, maybe he felt right. like that internally. But yeah, yeah. there was nothing that the Beatles were doing to stop him. Yeah. We got the receipts and we're playing them for you, people. <gasps> yeah, yeah. So, but you know what? I've never seen this interview parsed out in a book about the Beatles. It's, I know. And it's available. That's what I'm saying. Like, if it's available to us, come on, people. It's available <laughs> to every author. Right. And so one would hope it would have been in the latest and greatest books that came out in the past year. But none of them care. First of all, none of them care about Paul and and none of them care about the real story. No, I'm sorry to be that way, but it's true. They don't No, They care about like telling the story that's already been told a million times. Right. They're good with that story. But I think if we see displays constantly of Paul being a good supportive partner like you can understand why John and Paul would have wanted to be partners when you sort of see some of these behind the scenes conversations or even these kinds of displays of public support it's like yeah it would be wonderful to have a partner that was that invested in your happiness as an artist you know and there's actually another snippet that we found that again is not in the um the write-up of this interview, but we do have audio for it. And it is Paul talking about 
Two Virgins. I started to tell him off about the Two Virgins cover. Just because it shocked me as much as it shocked him, as much as it shocked anyone. And I just said, well, you know, you're going to get in trouble doing that. And he said, well, I don't mind. I'd rather do it and get into trouble if I get into trouble. But he said, I don't even think I will. So I eventually came around to it. And I said, well, don't get yourself in trouble, son. Go ahead. I mean, I, I think it's a good thing now. Silly of me to try and protect John. He knows what's going on. Ken Mansfield tells a similar story here about Paul. So, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so this is supported by what Mansfield says, too. Basically, that... You know, Paul was kind of didn't get it, wasn't necessarily supportive of it at first, but, you know, sort of accepted it and was was cool with it. You know, obviously he writes writes some of the liner notes. But I think for me, the, the, the core word, the most important word in this statement is protect. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, he says, silly of me to try and protect John, which is so different and so sweet, you know, like this is yeah. the Beatles that I love is these guys that love each other and are there for mm-hmm. each other. And we see like Paul really protective of John during the the Jesus Christ um, fallout in 66. And, you know, this is reflective of what a good friend he is and how worried he is that John is going to hurt. Like he's not worried about himself the way he's telling it here. He's not saying, I was worried that would hurt the Beatles or I didn't want to be associated with it. It was like, he thought John was going to get himself in trouble. And I think he thought he was going to get lots of negative feedback and that was going to hurt John's feelings or something like that, you know? And then eventually he sort of shugs and says, why am I doing that? John's fine. Why am I trying to protect him? But it, it really shows how paternal in some ways Paul can be towards John, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, there was a quote from Paul about two virgins at some point saying like, oh, great, people are going to see this and think uh, the Beatles are into porn now. Or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, part of it is just like, could we not, John? Because... You know, it does reflect on all of us. And and Ringo commented on that, too. Yes, remember? yes, he, I remember Ringo's, yes. Yeah, he's like, John, I have to answer for this, too, you know? <laughs> like, for your dick, okay? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, dude, come on. So there, I'm sure there's a little bit of that, too. But but I honestly don't think it's the primary thing that Paul's worried about. You know, I think it is, as you would, to anybody you love, as as we stated before when we were talking about the movies, it's like... That is kind of concerning. Like that, you go, "Hey, are you, <laughs> are you sure you want to do that?" And you know, it's interesting because it's it's like he kind of is making fun of himself here. And John, in this statement, John comes out as the cooler one. Like John was willing to take the risk. Paul always does that. Yeah, Paul always is willing to do that. Yeah, he makes John. He highlight. He makes John the cool one. You know. And, he does, and and I think it's so I think it's so lovely and sweet that he does that, um, but I hate that it's taken. Yes, that it's used against him. It's used against him to make him look square e- or and, weak, or yeah. you know, it's like oh, he's just doing that because he worships John Lennon so much. But it's like really, like I just I just encourage everybody to get a grip a little <laughs> bit and just like. Listen to that quote again. I mean, does it sound like he worships John or is he like, hey, I didn't think it was a great idea, but you know what? As it turned out, it's fine. So good for John. Yeah. And I think I think that there is a respect for John. Like he kind of is laughing at himself going, damn, you know, 
I was being protected. I didn't want him to be hurt and I wanted to protect him and he was willing to go out there. And you know what? He was right. You know what? And yep. I, that's, that's why I love John Lennon. He's, he's willing to do stuff and, you know, yep. he pushes boundaries and he was right. And sometimes I need to be pushed, you know, like there's, there's yes. kind of that element yes. to it. But at the same time, the way he tells the story also gives us more information. You know, like there's that quote from him where he talks about dealing with John and I think it was, I think it had to do with how do you sleep or something. And he was like, you know, it's like, he he basically says like, John is like his errant child. Like, you know, he gets annoyed with the child, but he's his yeah. child. And this is similar. Don't call my child naughty. Right. But again, that's a very di- different position than hero worshiping. Paul sees John for what he is. He's almost protective of John because I think he both admires John, but he knows John's vulnerability. Yeah. He's you know? very protective of John. And so, again, when people are assuming that Paul Hero worships John, it's like, guys, you, we got to go a little deeper than this. I mean, Paul, from the day he met John, had John's number. And I think he loves yep. him and respects him, and he knows how to manage John. And I think that he probably assumes that he is better able to take, I don't know, I, I sort of think that Paul understands that he may be the stronger one. In a lot of ways, yeah. In a lot of ways. I think he, re- he he realizes that John is willing to put himself out there. Like, John is almost more courageous in terms of being crazy and putting himself out there. And Paul gives John credit for that. You know, for being sort of like, you know, he talks about John's always willing to jump off the cliff. And he's more um, conservative in that respect. But I yes. think that also Paul knows that John is vulnerable and John gets hurt and he sees and he wants to protect John from that. And that's yes, that's it, that's a position of strength, you know? Yes. And John can sometimes hurt himself and others when yes. he's being reckless. And I think the thing is, is Paul forgives him because he sees that, you know? And I, I think, yes. again, this idea that Paul gives in and, you know, because he's so desperate versus the fact that Paul is, is so empathetic John's perspective and he knows he knows John mm-hmm. so well that he mm-hmm. almost allows him to do these things and doesn't take it so personally yes I think sometimes he does like especially in 69 70 71 I think he starts to take things personally and get hurt by John in ways that he maybe didn't in the earlier days which is a problem but I think it's he still toggles back and forth sometimes he is able to manage John and do what's best for John and sometimes he gets hurt by him you know yeah I agree. And, and you know, also, I just want to say, like, to have John's back for a minute, like, John, John is defensive on Paul's behalf. That is true. It, it's different from being protective. I, I don't believe that John sees Paul as vulnerable. No. No, that's the thing. It's like, if if we had, like, instead of calling Paul out for grinding music, if he was, like, getting in contact with Paul saying, or, you know, if he was telling a story saying, like, I phoned him and I told him and said that wasn't a good idea. Like, I didn't want him to be yeah, out there right. getting hurt by the critics. And I knew that he was going to, you know, like if we yeah. had stories about yes, him doing yeah. like that or, you know, I suggested that he not hire this person because I didn't want him to. Like, if we had stories like that, that is him being protective of Paul, like not wanting Paul to fail or to be hurt. But I do think you're right. Like he continually jumps on the LSD issue that he is defensive of like, don't, don't you criticize him? 
And we know from a few different people that he would also fight anybody who said shit about Paul. So. so it's it's kind of like he's willing for Paul to sort of he's willing to let Paul fall down occasionally and he probably enjoys it but he's like he doesn't want anyone else to to criticize Paul for that. Yeah, exactly. Like it like he could laugh at that but if you laugh ab- about it. Yeah, he's going to he's going to punch you. But again, that that speaks to a different power structure or, you know, whatever dynamic that than the one that we're always fed. Well, the thing about the John being defensive is I I I think that Partly he is defensive because he is possessive of Paul. Like Paul is an extension of him. I agree. Yes. A similar way that he is about Yoko. Yeah. Then he also asks what the Beatles are going to be doing when they're 40. I mean, it's, you know, again, I think trying to feel him out on future plans. What do you feel is left for you to do? What are the Beatles going to be doing when they're 40? Do you think you'll be I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know, you know, I've never known. I didn't know that when we were playing at the cabin that we'd be on the Royal Variety performance. And after that, all the papers said, well, what le- what's left for them, you know? So then we went to America. They said, what's left for them then, you know? Then we got into making better albums and stuff, you know? I mean, I just don't know what's going to happen. It'll be all right, though. I don't see how we can retire. You know, it's like Bridget Bardo and Greta Garbo, and all <laughs> they try to retire. You can't. Uh, Paul's answer is, is very noncommittal you know, non-specific and unenthusiastic. I mean, he's basically just saying, like, look, we're famous, so we're going to stay famous. I don't know that there's any solution to that. Um, well, it's interesting, too. You know, there, there's this sense that Paul is delusional and in walking into the divorce meeting, you know, believing that the Beatles are going to be together forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, that he's totally taken off guard by John's statement. I mean, he's pretty clearly non-committal in this interview. Yeah. You know, he's not willing to put anything out there because I think he honestly doesn't know. Yeah, I agree. And also to me, I mean, it doesn't sound like he's really talking about them as a unit so much. He's, he's pretty much like, I honestly don't know, but whatever happens, it'll be fine. He has this sort of Zen, let it be, attitude at this point um which is nice actually that he you know seems to to believe or is telling himself that he doesn't know how it's going to go but it's going to work out you know um, and he's right and he's right and he is right yeah but i think one thing that we noticed when we looked at this because we've addressed this before is Specifically, the question is about what are you going to be doing when you're 40? And this is something that has come up before, and they've answered it very differently before. Like that, that to us was quite different, right? Yeah, and that 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 was a little little sad (laughs) Um, because they've answered this question a couple times. um, Both John and Paul, yeah. Both John and Paul, right? So we know that Paul answers the question in 1960. Three, three. Yeah. Uh, when they're first tasting, you know, the first taste of Beatlemania, and he says that John and I talked about it because, of course, you guys have. <laughs> yeah, and, find your future and, together. <laughs> he said that after the Beatles go bust, we're going to keep writing songs together. I guess for other people or ourselves or whatever. Yeah. Unless you know, who knows if we can't? Maybe at forty, we won't be able to write <laughs> right, songs at the or whatever. Age but like, of forty, yes. <laughs> 
when talking about Northern songs in 1965, um, John says that, you know, the future of Northern songs is predicated on he and Paul continuing to write songs. Um, and that unless something happens, there's nothing to stop me and Paul writing songs into our old age. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, it. it's a little bit sad that, you know, they always had an answer in the past. And even I think in 66, John talks about them having a future, he and Paul having a future writing together, like at the end of 66, early 67. And he oh, says, yeah. he says forever. That we'll keep writing to forever. And so there's something, you know, it's a little bit sad that until, you know, probably in the past year at this point for 68, 69, they saw their futures together. You know, right, they, they were right, planning right. and they didn't see any reason why they wouldn't continue to write together. So, right. And know, that is the point. Yeah. And it just shows how quickly things turned. You know what I mean? And I, I believe given that what we know about the seventies, how they flirted constantly with writing together again, that the desire to, to write together never disappeared or to create together never disappeared, but it was just circumstantial at this point, you know, like the, the business, the partners, yeah. all of these other things around them were not supporting the Lennon McCartney partnership anymore. And so, you know, all of a sudden that future at 40, which is still 13 years away, you know, Paul not able to answer definitively anymore. Like he might have like three years earlier. So mm. that's a bit of a sad evolution. But the, the thing that offsets it is his, it'll be all right, though. You know, like I like hearing Paul saying it's going to be all right. Yeah. Even if it's his own mantra. And was probably being reassured by Linda also. Well, I, I feel like he's channeling Linda with that statement. And then lastly, Wig asks about their decision making process. And do you still have meetings? You know, do, do you hang out or whatever? I mean, People have been asking them this <laughs> for like the past four years, like every day. It must be so exhausting. Can you imagine? Like defending your friendship with your coworkers? Yes. And I feel like in the beginning, like in the early days, it was kind of like, how do you guys like each other so much? Don't you fucking hate each <laughs> yeah. other? Like, do why you spend are you... every minute with each other? Is yeah, this exactly. not annoying? And they're like, no, Whoa. we love it. We only like each other. <laughs> exactly. They're like, I don't get it. Like, what? wait, so you guys work together and you live together and you go on vacation together? What's yeah. wrong? And John's I don't like, understand. And in fact, I don't want any other people. I tried. <laughs> I don't like them. I only like the Beatles. <laughs> He's like, listen, I played Monopoly with a few people, and I'm here to tell you. <laughs> Never again. People are overrated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never again. I miss them so much. <laughs> it's true. It's so cute. <laughs> which is which is funny, though, because that was like a year and a half ago that he made that statement. Like late 67, early 68. You're, that's crazy. Yes, that's crazy. That's crazy that he was saying like he tried to make new friends and decided he didn't like them and only liked the Beatles. And in fact, you know, just just to hit on that point again, we also know that John a week earlier just commented to another interviewer. <laughs> he sure did. He sure did. That his only real friends were the Beatles and their little community, you know? Well, and I mean, we we have support for that too. Harry Nilsson said um, 
after John died, when he was asked, "Uh, you were real close to John. And he was like, I was not close to John. Listen, he's like, I lived with John. We made albums together. (laughs) I stayed up talking with him till the wee hours of the morning. I have heard his secrets. And let me tell you something. No, he was close to the Beatles. I know about his intimacy (laughs) with them. But I don't have actual intimacy with him as a as a friend, right, as a person. Right. Which is interesting because he loved John, but he did not feel so like much. he had that heart connection with John because I guess it wasn't there on John's side. Like John's emotional bond, his deep, deep bond was with the Beatles. And Fred Seaman said that too. As late as, you know, like late John's 70s, final yeah. years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He still is like, I don't have any friends. You know, I was so hurt by the breakup with Paul that <laughs> Paul I can't be bust. friends anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's Paul or nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I made three friends once. So I feel like that the, the questions in the early years were like, I don't I don't really understand the depths of, of love that you guys have for each other. I'm a little confused by it, frankly. But then, and and then, then we it, all fell in it, love with idea, that idea, though. We exactly, as a population. Yeah. Exactly. And then when they broke up, it was like like everybody lost the rhyme. Well, but, um, and that's the thing that's so confusing about the Beatles is that we all fell in love with this brotherhood and this friendship and this the fun that they had together. And then John afterwards, like, it was all fake, you know? Like, we, yeah. we were just like army buddies. And that's what I always found so hurtful. But I'm pretty sure that was real because you guys really seem to like each other. You know? Seriously, if that if that was fake, then fuck that whole band. Just throw the whole band in the trash. I don't fucking even want the Beatles then. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big load of shit. And if you believe that, then I don't even know why you like the Beatles, well, honestly. I agree with that. I mean, like, if, if you really believe that they were just acquaintances. The thing that people seem to buy into is that basically John Lennon wanted to be and George Harrison wanted to be out of the Beatles within a year and a half of the Beatles becoming popular. So, <laughs> you know, like for some reason they find that a cool story. Like that the John and George hated the Beatles as of 65, you know? Uh, have fun with that. Yeah. They, they're still asked that question in the later years, but then it's just like, okay, now we see cracks and we're trying to pry the cracks open now oh, yeah you know, it's like tell us what's really going on you are you guys going to break up then it became panic that they were going to break right up right like they almost he want, they want to be reassured at this point that no you guys are still friends <laughs> right a year earlier uh you, you know a year and a half earlier in 68 that they, they had been in new york on the tonight show when they had been asked you know are you guys really this that close and john is like yeah he could de- <laughs> he could definitively answer at that point that yes they were really close, and that was yeah. May '68. We're in September '69, so you know, like 14, well, 15 it, months later. And not for nothing, they were always close. I mean, John and Paul were close till John died, right. and you know, on some level, they probably still are close. Maybe a year or two later was you know the nadir of their relationship, but they were still deeply connected, even when they were fighting. Yeah, that's just how it is. And that's how they see it. So I'm sorry if you don't like that story. But anyways, but when Paul replies to this question, he is kind of acknowledging like, yeah, um, we're not as close as we used to be. Yeah. What do you do about uh, decisions like that? Do you have meetings still and and talk things over, or do you just go your separate ways and get together when it comes around to recording? Yeah, we're we're still as much in contact with each other. 
as they were. We're not as much in contact with each other as we were when we were on the road every day in the same van, <laughs> in the same car, same dressing room. Obviously, we're not in that kind of contact. But I think Abbey Road shows that we're in contact. It's not yeah. as though it's like a made-up album. We're no. playing all the way through it, yeah. and yes. we play together. So, I mean, we're in contact. We have plenty of meetings. In fact, I've got one any second now, David. We are still a band. I mean, we made Abbey Road. It's not a fake album. It's a real album. So, yeah. you know, that that's real. But um, Yeah, that's proof that we spend time together. <laughs> so, you know, we get together and we have meetings and shit like that. But obviously we're not as close as we were when we were living together. Yeah, so he's setting expectations here. There is a transformation going on for them yes. relationship-wise, like over the past year and a half. If they are not talking explicitly about it, it's got to be extremely hard and confusing. Yeah. Because they, they kind of have downgraded from... Spouses, you know, pseudo spouses. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. No, I think that's a really good point that, you know, as of 67, 68, they're still living together. They're still planning their their lives together. John makes the point that the Beatles fell apart and he specifically calls out when Paul and Ringo left Rishikesh and he and George stayed there. I think that that was a really big moment. And again, that that suggests that their lives aren't all connected together. Like, you know, to, to John, that that maybe was representative of something. Yeah. You know, a that level, dream slipping away. Yeah, yeah, the dream of them being a family together, maybe. Or having that that intense closeness to each other and just always being whatever they are, like more than best friends that maybe that that was a, a sharp reminder that you know they're not going to live together forever yeah yeah like it's illusionary right on some level you know this is probably the clearest communication to the public saying obviously we're not in that kind of contact like we were and he's saying like well we did record this album together so clearly we are spending time together but it's like well paul obviously <laughs> you know you're a band um, yeah, sorry. Did you think that we thought that that was a <laughs> it's like animatronic Beatles doing the? Yeah, we assumed that that's a real album. This is a new reality where they were a family and best friends. And now here, Paul is just communicating like, well, we have meetings together and we still play together. But it's like Paul, the public wants to know: Do you still love each other? Do you, are you still yeah. like best friends? Are you still like this family that we fell in love with? Nobody can really put it into words. And everybody knows it's a big deal. Like, they know. There's trouble in paradise. So, like, the public knows on some level something is... Something's up. If the undertone of the question is, like, you guys still love each other? Paul's yeah. like, well, we just made an album. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that counts for something. That's what the public wants to be reassured, that they still love each other, that they're still yep. committed to each other. And he specifically does not say that. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't sound heartbroken about it, but he doesn't sound thrilled about it either. Yeah. Yeah. He's very matter of fact. Like this is yeah. the situation. I mean, we know he sounds thrilled when he's talking about his his family. Yeah. So he's he's happy with that. And I think maybe he's not thrilled with the situation with the Beatles, but He's got other things in his life, too, you know? Yeah. They all do. 
Could be he feels insecure too, you know? I mean, he, well, he, I mean he probably, yeah. I did want to just sort of highlight the thing about living together because, you know, as we said, it, it is something that comes up a lot. Yeah. I mean, the touring living together issue is an intriguing one because, as you said, it is something they both mention a lot. So there is something that's really meaningful to the notion of living together, you know, like mm-hmm. but fundamentally, they did virtually live together for years on tour And, uh, you know, maybe John was even trying to recreate this with the Greek island concept uh, in 67. On a surface level, I can see the importance of living together. You know, like I can see what a jean jacket would say, that it would be like, it's it's convenient. And, you know, you're probably on the same wavelength because John's lazy. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) You're you're on the same wavelength because you're sharing the same experiences. But I don't think that totally explains the emotional significance of this concept because many creative partnerships are still successful, you know, without <laughs> the, the need to be together 24 seven. And, and especially the, the fact that John starts to use the idea that it got false. Yep. Uh, Come over to my house and, and let's write songs. that Exactly. Like to me, the fact that he starts to use words like that suggests that there's a dis- disillusionment. You know what I mean? Like there's a bit of bitterness about that kind of terminology. And maybe maybe it's the fact that Paul would come over to his house and it seemed like it was for a business reason. Like we are writing hits rather than because we are together. Like there seems to have been a togetherness yes. uh, when they were on tour. Like coming over to my house to write a song is more of a job as opposed to yes. us actually feeling the same thing. Yes. And it and, being and organic. When we're actually living the same life together and feeling the same feelings, then it is it's it's created out of a pure shared space. Yes. Rather and a than shared like mind. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, when they're interviewed in 66, this is when John is like, you know, only 100 people can understand our songs like it seems like it was Yeah. Right. Like coming from them and they had this symbiosis. It's their John, special secret language. Yeah. It's this, yes, this special togetherness. And, you know, John says that in 1980 that he's only ever had two real partners, Paul and Yoko. And look at how extreme he got with Yoko. So, you know, I just think that, that there's sort of a trend that if he went that crazy with Yoko, he's going to want something maybe on a scaled down version, but something about that level Similar. of togetherness. Yeah. With, with his creative partner, you know, Paul coming it, over, maybe made it, like you said, it made it commercial for a reason rather than their joint feelings on a matter. Yeah. It sounds a little out there, whatever, to compare the to John and Yoko's situation to the Lennon-McCartney situation, but it's not, really. I mean, well, they he are, does. He, he, he compares does, them. exactly. I wouldn't they're compare t- them at all because they're very, <laughs> very different. And frankly, you know... Like it's a marriage versus, you know, a creative partnership. But John calls it his real marriage anyways, like the Beatles and Lennon and McCartney. If he didn't do it, I wouldn't do it, but he does. When they are on the road, they are as close as John and Yoko. They're they are. they're sharing a room and they're prisoners in that in that room. And I think John likes it. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Like, because we, you know, we we've talked about like, well, what is so different from touring versus yes. what like does that give them? What does that give? Them? Yeah, like what does that give them? 
Yes, exactly. Like, what is the added the added thing that 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 touring provides yes, that just structure. being normal people in their homes doesn't exactly. provide? You know, exactly. Like, like, what is the structure? Because there seems to be something about that structure that is good for Lennon McCartney. We've got interviews with John where he's like, you know, the one where he says like. Why didn't anyone think I was under Paul's spell? The Beatles and I spent as much time together as Yoko and I did. So he literally says that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We were eating together, sleeping together. They're sharing, you know, they're sharing a bathroom. They're sharing a bedroom. They're having sex in the same room. I mean, and they chose to do that, too. They chose to do it. Exactly. They they can afford separate rooms. Right. I mean, people on tour said that, that they found it was quite sweet that the Beatles actually chose to be in the same rooms because they certainly could have had their own rooms the entire time. But they preferred that. So there was something about the Beatles tours that gave them a structure or gave them a sense of that they were the only ones that maybe understood what they were going like in and you know what? And Ringo talks about it, too. He was like, there was a lot of love in those hotel rooms, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are some of the best Beatle moments is when they're all, it's the eye of the hurricane, as somebody referred to it. You right. Know? But I, I think there is something about being in that eye together, being yes. locked in the room that John really, really likes. Like, it's a very secure place for him, and he feels really protected in there. And I don't think he likes it as much when they're on their own in their homes and Paul's 20 minutes away doing God knows what with God knows who. And right. he doesn't know what's going on in his mind or with his stupid friends that he hates or, you know, yeah. he's learning about stuff that John's not there for. And that's hurtful. And it's also, it also arouses, you know, jealousy and anger and competitiveness. Yeah. Well, when you think about the, the that environment, you know, that, they are all sharing an experience that nobody else is a part of that. So they really are, you know, right. a, a unit. Knowing how possessive and competitive Lennon and McCartney are, that this enables them to be watching each other, seeing each other. And I think one of the advantages yeah. is that other people don't get in there. Like when they're right. touring, they've got tons of people around. But again, when they close those hotel rooms, it's it's just the two of them or else the four of them together. When they get back to London, other people get between them. And mm-hmm. that, as you said, arouses jealousy and envy and, you know, misunderstandings and all that kind of thing. So it's more the in exclusive. the same room and exclusive and having that level of intimacy seems to be good for Lennon McCartney. Uh, yes, I think they both benefit from it. And I think they both like it. And also, I just think it takes the pressure off, like it just alleviates a lot of that jealousy and competition yes. and yes. craziness. And it's interesting because I think that any jean jacket would be like, John hated that. Like he couldn't wait to <laughs> yeah, escape yeah, that. Yeah, right. He was bo- a free spirit. <laughs> <laughs> right. He, he was such a free spirit that he had to go home and stay in his home. Like John came back and didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. He stayed at home, you know, and then you read the books and it's all like, John just had to escape from his home. It's like, <laughs> yeah. John's always somebody who likes to be you know he's he's fairly homebody exactly and I think like even with the 67 idea of the Greek island that John likes to have I think he like you said he likes the security of knowing his family is around him his little Beatles family is around him and yeah they're together I mean no doubt that that there was a lot of really awful things about being on tour and having screaming fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt, no doubt. You you know, and I'm sure John 
probably wanted to rebel against a lot of that. So there was a, we're not suggesting that there wasn't a bad side, but I think for the relationship, they both talk about this so much that there was some shift at the end of touring that yes. there, there was something that I think was necessary for Lennon and McCartney that was hard to replicate when they got back there. And I think, I think it is a sense of security that came from them being able to see each other every day. Not the, con- not the convenience, agree. not the convenience. It's, 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 it's a more of a, an emotional thing. I, I a thousand percent agree. And like, if you are a jean jacket or, or, or whatever, you just want to play devil's advocate and you, you truly believe you're like, no, John wanted out of the Beatles and, <laughs> in yeah, 66 yeah, yeah. and all this sort of stuff. You'd be like, well, then why did Paul want to keep touring? And John didn't. Well, first of all, I think Paul wanted to keep touring because he likes touring. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> but I think that John, I don't think it was like planned out. Like, I don't want to tour anymore because I want to break up with Paul. <laughs> you know, I think it's like, he's just like, I don't want to tour anymore. This, yes. You know, fuck this shit. Yeah. And then I think once they stopped touring, he was like, oh, well, shit, what's going to happen now? Right. You know, right. I don't think it was thought out in that way. We know that the early part of 66 before they went on tour, John and Paul were a little more apart, a little more estranged, you know? And then the, by that tour, they were super close. Like yeah, you can yeah, yeah, yeah. literally see them get closer. Yeah. Um, I mean, you see Paul really step up in that tour too, because John was under attack and Paul, you know, I don't think he ever gets credit for this, but I think that he did a really great job of defending John. And if you go and you look at the footage, they are incredibly close on that. Yes. On that yeah. tour, I guess when they spend time together, that there's some magic that happens there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And to, to your point, it's like it was situational that they wanted to quit touring. John was under tons of pressure in 66 with the, you know, bigger than Jesus issue and all the all the shit that they were going through at that yeah, point. So, yeah. But, you know, John was the one who really suffered when they got back. You know, he did his film. He thought it was boring. He was lonely. You know, right. and he talked about it later that he was going through hell at that time, and Paul wasn't. Paul was confident, and it's like they came back, and Paul kind of blossomed and was like, "Hey, this is great." Exactly. You know, but <laughs> but having said that, Paul does actually recognize that there was some kind of shift. You know, that's in, true. It, well, uh, yeah, I think at some point they both realize like we've lost something because they don't really have they don't really have the intimacy of living together after the tours, which again is why I think John was like, I have an idea. How about this? I can't lure Paul to the suburbs. Maybe (laughs) if we get like tube houses on a beautiful (laughs) Greek Island where we can all smoke weed and do whatever we want. Like maybe that'll just. He'll like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We can build him his own studio home. (laughs) Lock him in there. Yeah, exactly. What can I lure you with? Well, you know, it's interesting. John does actually say Pepper was a peak for them creatively as a partnership. But then we do know that John basically moved into Cavendish, according to George Martin, during this time. And and even Barry Miles said that John was mm-hmm. often over there. You know, that he talks about going out for dinner with his wife and John and Paul during that time when Jane was gone. So yeah, Several times. Yeah. So I just think John is so an all or nothing person. That if he's writing and creating with somebody, he wants to be, you know, that that he doesn't want to be driving out and sort of like doing the work and then going home. He wants yeah. to be like all in with them. 
you can see where John is coming from because John just goes back to his home and is like, oh, well, I'm, I'm just back here. Well, he could have gone out with Paul. No, but but in, in April, Paul's like, okay, I got, I'm going to the States to go visit Jane. Yeah. And I'm sure John's like, oh, okay, well, fucking have fun. I'll see you <laughs> when you get back, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, and he goes to San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's like, wow, I'm here in the United yeah. States. I'm going to go visit all these other bands and exactly. hang out with all these other guys and, like, play my new songs for the Beach Boys and Jefferson Airplane. Exactly. And John's like, wait a minute. I thought you were going to see your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. a different conversation, dude. <laughs> yeah. But, but still, John could have gone out with him in the city. I mean, but he he doesn't. I think that John, you know, John just see. I think you're right that John seems to get very intense with a few people. Like everybody's attracted to John. He's, you know, extremely magnetic, charismatic. People love John, but John seems to like, like to have a few core people around him. That just seems to be his, his thing. Like growing up, he's got Pete shot and always around. He seems to just need that one or two people that he's very, very close to. You know, Paul's not hanging out at Weybridge in fucking 1967, plus Paul's, you know, peak rock star period. So, well, but the thing is, is is that like the the stories talk about the fact that like John was stuck at home, like John could have gone out. He really could have. She wasn't saying, saying, no, of course she wasn't. Of course that was John's choice. This is people trying to retrofit this stupid narrative of of John going, I was ready to leave in 66. You know, it's like, bitch, you weren't ready to leave because you didn't fucking leave. Like John doesn't come back from his movie going oh, fuck this Beatle noise. You know yeah. what? I'm going to start another band or I'm going to put out a solo record or I'm going to do this or that or whatever. He comes back and he's like, oh my God, you guys. <laughs> I miss Jesus. you so much. That was terrible. That was <laughs> terrible. So that is a big load of bullshit. I mean, we've got him on, you know, in an interview talking about the fact that he's going to come back and Paul's got us signed up for this new like family way production like it's not like he that is not a john lennon that sounds like super independent like i'm done with that stuff you know what of i mean of course he's of course he's not like i'm not i'm not denying that he isn't you know moody and philosophical and like feeling melancholy of course he is he's feeling, feeling all constrained those things. By, by fame maybe sure exactly like i don't i'm not saying like that he wasn't questioning the point of it all and all yeah, that yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. but that's not the same as like boy i wish i could dump this shitty beetle bullshit. The, the fact that John wants to do some new stuff and feels constrained by fame does not mean that he wants to escape from the closest people in his life. Like he may want to do that with them. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, I don't know why this desire to do new things always has to exclude the other guys. Cause that's not what he said. He didn't say, he didn't say they're the ones that are holding me back. He did actually say, I was so glad to see them. I've never been so glad to see them. Contemporaneously, he did. That's what actually happened. But if you're trying to retrofit the hero story of how he, you know, emerges at the end. You ignore those bits. Yeah, you focus on the fact, you know, his Cleve interview and the fact that he said, I just know I'm, you know, supposed to do something else. <laughs> like, oh, you're supposed to do something else other than just sit around buying shit and like ordering <laughs> exotic chocolates and like go-karts and, and gorilla, gorilla suits. suits? Yeah. Like you're a fucking real housewife of Weybridge. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree, John. I think you're destined for something better than that. But, right. but what? But like, we can't extrapolate that to mean like I'm... He had to leave the Beatles. Leaving the Beatles. That's stupid. Right, right, exactly. Like, that's a reach. That's a reach. 
Yeah, but then okay. So if we're going to tie it to the situation right now, so we're we're talking about you know 1969, and you know I think it's slowly but surely been eroding, and and they either had to make a a move to something that you know got them closer, whether it was the moving to Greece or you know what I mean. Like there almost needed to be a move to bring Lennon and McCartney closer again, or else. They were going to move apart because other people were getting yeah. between them, you know. And I think we've got both Lennon and McCartney st- struggling at this point with this isn't the partnership that they love. Like it's kind of like a false version of it right now. In 1968, yeah. Well, that's the problem is that they don't spend any time together anymore. But the thing is, I don't think that the feelings and the the love of that partnership is gone. Do you? <clears throat> No, I don't. Not at all. But listen to listen to how the songwriting changes in, you know, in like 68 or like 69 through the 70s. You know, it's like their songwriting turns much more towards like trying to explain things from a distance versus John's sort of like... um you know, mid sixties to 68 period where it's more like, I'm sitting right next to you. Would you please look at me? Listen to me. (laughs) Yes. See me. Yes. Right. And so, you know, it suddenly shifts more to. I was trying to catch your eyes. More of a, either explaining thyself, you know, or like. Exactly. The songs from the sixties when they, you know, that we think that they're communicating to each other. It's like a conversation between two people that are in the same room. Exactly. Whereas later it's like they're writing letters to each other, you know. Exactly. And that's even, that's even as early as like 69. That's what I'm saying. It's not like. Yes, yes, yes. Even at this point, they are trying to reach each other, but you can tell that it's from afar, even by 69. And they are still pulling shenanigans to try and make the other person react. Like, I I feel like all these stunts are kind of to try and get them back to some form of closeness, but they can't. They're just spiraling. They need closeness. They need to spend time uh, together. That's right. There's a gulf. You can hear it. You can see it in the songwriting. Which is tragic because that's why, like, Let It Be is such an incredible document as both a film and and an album because they're writing these, uh, like, letters to each other and sending them to each other. Let's take across the room, you know? (laughs) I know, I know. They're speaking in lyrics and in code and writing songs that are deeply meaningful to each other because they can't talk. You know. And what's crazy is that occasionally they're like workshopping them together. <laughs> I know. And pretending they don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Other. Exactly. It's like, you guys love that dance, huh? I mean, and, and, and John partly is responsible because he's got Yoko there for whatever reason. And, you know, Paul later in life says that it was one of his great regrets that he did not fight. Object to her. Object yeah, to her being, being the there. Studio. Yeah. Because I think, you know, as we've said, we suspect that's what John wanted or needed one way or the other. It made a decision. If he wasn't going to stand up, then Yoko was the partner he had to go with. And if Paul did, then that would have given them probably the time and intimacy they needed to be able to write together. Because we know that Paul said that they couldn't write together with Yoko there. He just couldn't. 
So effectively, that destroys Lennon and McCartney. From that point, it's like they don't write any songs, you know, from the same space anymore. It's like John becomes very much like, this is my song in 1968, late 1968, you know? They're already sort of divvying it up, and it's sad. But then they just start writing songs to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. They go through that three-month period where they actually write individual songs, and then they just sit across the room from each other and write songs to each other, which they continue to do for the rest of the 70s. Their life. John's life, yeah, yeah. You know, John said this. It's faster for us to communicate. The best way to communicate is through music. So... It's like, I guess, John, or you could just talk. That's an option, too. (laughs) John's like, clearly the best way to communicate is telepathy or music. (laughs) It's like, maybe not, John. (laughs) Oh, it's a disaster. But this is where we're at at 69, where I think that, you know, Paul doesn't sound like he's checked out, but he sounds like he's unsure of, you know, where they're at. Relationship. Yes. And it is interesting that Paul seems to have a eureka moment where he's like, I know what'll what'll work is if we go back on the road. Exactly. Like the fact that I you know, he wants to go touring, I think is always tied to the fact that Paul loves touring. And I do think it is getting them away from the business and client and all that kind of bullshit. But I also think it is he understands that that's when they really, really bond. They have time alone together. To get into that shared mind space again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the question then becomes, why didn't John jump at the chance to go on tour? And that's something we'll discuss when we get to the divorce meeting. The David Wig interview that Paul gives is on September 19th. Which is a significant day. Because this is also the day where they have uh, some resolution to the Northern Songs battle, which has been raging since spring of 69. So probably five months this has been going on. And, And, you know, later John lists the battle for Northern Songs and the battle over Klein as being the two major stressors of the time. So I think that it has been underestimated in terms of how stressful and important this is to the emotional landscape of the time. At this point, from what we understand, based on a few different accounts in in books, it seems to be that they thought they were going to win. They thought that the consortium was going to go with them. There was a meeting on the 19th um, to discuss the board membership of Northern Songs. Like It sounds like they were that sure that things were going to go their way, that they were starting to plan next steps. And I guess at the last minute, they find out that the consortium sides with Lou Grade. And so by the end of the day, they have lost the battle. They have lost the battle for the majority shares in Northern Songs. I can't imagine how devastating that would be. I mean, the and the timing the is timing, just absolutely awful. The timing is very important. I don't think that we can look at this period and not take into account what happens on the 19th, which is that, that basically John and Paul's baby. Their baby's just been like kidnapped and sold down the river. Yeah. For all they know, they can't get it back. It's been lost. For for everybody who 
has decided that you know John has made this thoughtful decision to leave the band. I'd like to just play out a scenario where on September nineteenth, you know John and Paul get controlling interest in Northern Songs. That would be a huge win for them. I mean, right. they've been battling all summer. Absolutely, I think that they would all be so on this is high. Great. Right. In they go of- out to dinner. They rekindle their bullshit. And, you know, is, is John really coming in the next day to ask for a divorce after that? Right. I mean, and just just to include this little factoid that is important is that apparently to sweeten the deal during the summer or some point in this battle, John and Paul offered to extend Lennon-McCartney by something like six or seven years. I'm sure that was partly incentive to win, but they were willing to put their names behind, you know, like this was something they were willing to do is to extend Lennon-McCartney for multiple years. They were willing to extend their own so-called marriage contract for another six or seven years. Again, you can write it off and say, well, they were just trying to convince them to sell. But I mean, they were willing to do it. And so they must have thought it was worth it. I just see it as a huge statement that they would be willing to do that. Because if they really are on the verge of not wanting to be tied together I can't imagine at that point. Even for the sake of winning controlling interest in their own publishing, they right. wouldn't do it. Right, because that's that's like six or seven of their most fertile creative years. If they really hated the, working with the other person and so didn't want to be with them, I just can't imagine them even potentially throwing this out as an issue. So I just think that there are little breadcrumbs that tell us that they had not made any decisions. And we're still emotionally connected to Lennon McCartney. So the fact that, you know, at the end of the day or whenever it came that they found out that they lost. And I just think it would have been absolutely crushing. Well, and the other thing I think it's important to factor in is that John is very superstitious. It is. That is a very good point. Yes. And Yoko is too. And Yoko is too, yes. And and both of them are big believers in fate. Signs. And signs, exactly. All that type of stuff. So Yeah, that's an excellent point because if somebody is looking for a sign that their their history yeah. is done with somebody, whereas yep. like you said, in the event that they had won it, I think that that might have seemed, seemed like a sign like, mm-hmm. yeah. no, Lennon and McCartney is strong. It is going to continue. We have it back again. Like, it must have just seemed like, fuck it, it's all, you know, this is our history. It's sold everything we've worked for. I mean, they would have felt crushed, bereft, grieving the loss. And and it sounds like we're being really dramatic. But to artists, to lose control of their art is huge. Right. So it's hard to overstate that. So when Dick James originally sold... His shares to Lou Grade. We know that John was inconsolable. And that was, you know, he said that Paul was annoyed, but John was inconsolable. So, you know, this is a hugely emotional issue for them. And I think you're right. Like, just 
picturing what the scenario would have been the next day if they had won it, I, I can't imagine that they would have had this win and John would have walked in and said, you know what, I'm quitting the band. So what we're going to do in part B is actually try and get underneath this three to one scenario and see it from all of their perspectives, because Mm -hmm. uh, right now there's just a lot of confusion about why George is acting the way he is, why John is acting the way he is, what Paul's doing wrong. I mean, there's, you know what I mean? Like, I think that we actually want to try and get underneath that. And, and also, you know what? I think that one of the problems is that people just kind of want to rush to the end. Well, we know that John quits, so we know that he's wanted to quit for so long. The parts that we don't understand, they just kind of, Gloss you know, over. paste over. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, you know, Lewis is saying that John Lennon ceased to be a Beatle in the beginning of the year of 1969. And yet, like, he's talking about wanting to tour with the Beatles and trying to convince Ringo in like the spring of 69. Like there, it's just, there's so much bullshit that, yeah, you know, if you get underneath these hypotheses and, and, and assumptions and sort of look at what they actually did say, it's a different story. And, and that's what nobody has done for this period. And I think like, there's just like the, what's happening between George and Paul. I mean, like there's no bigger mystery. Yeah. So we're going to take a crack at Paul and George in part B. Because it has to be done. So stay tuned. End of part one.